Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Uh, it, it, the, the fact of the matter is I waited until <laughs> I was uh, quite well along. Uh, I was approaching 60 and thought, I mean, I had been thinking for years that there has to be more to ministry than this. Yet it was not until I left uh, the U.S. and left the Presbyterian Church and served the church uh, abroad that I came to see what what ministry could look like and what what God probably had in mind for me all along. It just took me, I was, I'm, I'm dense. And so it took me a long time to get there. Churches aren't immune to the Great Resignation, and that's an important conversation to have. Surprising numbers of pastors have either quit recently or are seriously considering it. Today's guest, Douglas Brower, spent 40 years as a Presbyterian pastor. Today on Connections, he shares his moments of disillusionment as well as doubts and his acceptance of grace. He'll also talk about a new book that he's released titled Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life. We're joined today by Douglas Brower. He spent 40 years serving churches in Illinois, Michigan, Florida, and Switzerland before retiring to Michigan. He's also an author who recently released a new book titled Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life. He's going to share a little bit more about that book coming up a little later on in the show. You were a pastor for 40 years since left that field. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you originally into ministry. You know, I did not go to seminary with the uh, thought of being a pastor. I went thinking I would be a a, a book editor or magazine editor. And it was about two-thirds of the way through my seminary experience that I realized you really can't graduate from seminary without working in a church. And how I missed that, uh, I don't know. I had nothing against the church. I just wasn't headed that direction. So uh, it was between my second and third years of seminary that I, I decided to take an internship year. And it was there that I uh, found some vocational clarity. What was that clarity like when it first came and you started to realize like, oh, I'm being called into something like ministry. Like, were you like, oh, yay, ministry. Like, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, well, all of those feelings were there, too. But um, <laughs> what happened was that um, I had and this is a cliche, but it's not a cliche either. I had what uh, can only be called a life changing experience. I mm-hmm. was preaching a sermon one Sunday evening. Uh, at a church that had both Sunday uh, Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. I was preaching about uh, the parable of the prodigal son, although the irony of that was lost on me at the time. And uh, I, I was explaining the meaning of grace, which I thought I knew very well. Mm. And uh, suddenly, in the middle of that sermon, I found that I could not go on. Uh, I was uh, crying. Some people can talk and cry at the same time, not me. So... <laughs> I, I realized that I realized the full impact of what I was talking about, the, the depth of God's grace in my own life. And eventually, of course, I was able to go on. And, and those changes are never instantaneous. It took, uh, you know, days and weeks and months even to sort that out. But what happened was that I, I realized what I was supposed to be doing with my life. I was supposed to be pointing people uh, toward this wonderful good news of God's grace in their lives. Over your 40 years as a pastor, when did you start to look at things a little bit differently? You know, yeah, 
I think that happened early on. I, I went to a seminary that dangled a, a vision for ministry that was not uh, dangled in front of us, a vision for ministry that was not uh, altogether healthy. And uh, of course, uh, pastors have egos too. So it was not so uh, difficult to see that we would buy into that vision that, that was uh, presented to us. Uh, for example, we had pastors come adjunct professors of preaching who would come to the seminary and uh, we would be very impressed by them. And uh, I, I suppose that the idea was that we would model ourselves on these visiting uh, preaching professors, one in particular from New York city, pastor of the largest Presbyterian church in the city at the time. I, he, he was so impressive. He had an expensive suit and a nice haircut and uh, he always had a tan even in the winter. And uh, I, <laughs> I th- we just looked at him and thought, well, this is what it looks like to be a successful pastor. And, oh, we could not have been, I could not have been more wrong about that. Yeah, it's hard. Like I've pastored a small church and then you look at the other bigger churches and I don't know, you look at them and they're more successful because they have more cars in the parking lot, right? Or they're on radio or they're on television and we can barely get people to come through the door. So obviously we're failing somehow, it feels like. You know, yes, and it's it's not just pastors who buy into that vision, although we do, uh, but churches also think that growth is going to bring happiness. And, you know, if we meet our budget this year, boy, then God must really be uh, blessing us. Uh, I think churches and pastors buy into this unhealthy vision. And in the end, it's going to be disillusion, disillusioning and disappointing. When it comes to that, with the disillusionment and whatnot, how do you measure that success? And you eventually, uh. you eventually reached that point in your career where you were feeling that disillusionment. You know, uh, what I discovered is that disillusionment is not a bad thing. And that is counterintuitive. But um, some spiritual writers along the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes to mind, spiritual writers along the way have said that disillusionment, in fact, is a gift. It frees us from one way of thinking about God, for example, uh, to finding a more authentic uh, way of thinking about God and and our faith. So in in hindsight, I wish that I had given in to my disillusionment uh, much earlier because I could have found a much more authentic way of doing ministry. Uh, the the fact of the matter is I waited until <laughs> I was uh, quite well along. Uh, I was approaching 60 and thought, I mean, I had been thinking for years that there has to be more to ministry than this. And it was not until, I'm just going to answer the question before you ask it. It was not until I left uh, the U.S. and left the Presbyterian Church and served a church uh, abroad that I came to see what what ministry could look like and what what God probably had in mind for me all along it just took me I was I'm I'm dense and so it took me a long time to get there it's really interesting like you mentioned Bonhoeffer I think it was in the cost of discipleship Bonhoeffer talking about leaders that dream about their they dream about their community and they love their dream of community more than they love their community right Yes, And he said, dreaming like that uh, is bad. He calls it a sin, I think, or um, yeah, basically like it makes dreaming about community makes you pretentious and proud. And uh, you need to just love your community more than the dream of what could be. 
Mike, we're talking about the same chapter and verse from Bonhoeffer. Nice. <laughs> and I, I was arrested by uh, what, what he said about that. He said, uh, if, if we are fortunate, we will come to this realization earlier in our lives. And I was just struck mm-hmm. by, if we are fortunate, uh, because we, most of us experience disillusionment as such a negative uh, thing in our lives. I mean, we fight it. Yeah. Speaking of a great book like Bonhoeffer's, you've written a book as well then about your experience. Now, I find it really I- intriguing, the title, Chasing, uh, Chasing After the Wind. Tell us a little bit about that then. So in, in the, uh, I grew up in a Christian household and I come from generations of uh, 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 Christians. Whenever my family gathered at my grandmother's dinner table, uh, it was customary to read from scripture and pray, which we did in our own home. But uh, my grandmother always chose the book of Ecclesiastes of all biblical books. She chose Ecclesiastes. Mm. And as you know, uh, in the first couple of chapters there, there's this uh, refrain. I, I looked at my life and it was all vanity and a chasing after wind. So, I, I mean, that meant nothing mm. to me as a child, although I remembered it. And now in adulthood, I think, I think my grandmother was assessing her life and telling us in the only way she could that a lot of it doesn't amount to much, right? That, that, that we need to avoid what, what's wind in, in our lives. Anyway, when I came to the end of my 40 plus years of uh, uh, ministry, uh, I was plunged into this life review. I couldn't help it. I didn't want it. Uh, and, but I couldn't avoid it. There it was. And I, I, I realized this was a hard uh, admission to make. I, I realized that a lot of what I had spent my life doing was uh, chasing after wind. I mean, the, the, suddenly that expression I learned in childhood uh, came to describe exactly what I was feeling. What was the biggest thing that you learned from those 40 years of ministry? Yeah. Okay. And, and, we've we've talked some about disillusionment and the disappointments that go with ministry and all that's real. But I I have to say, and I don't want to end the interview without emphasizing this, what sustained me all those years, what kept me going even in the tough moments was the recognition of God's presence. And in the book, I call it the Holy Bits. But I was given a great privilege as a pastor to spend time with the Holy with God's presence breaking through in unexpected ways, uh, through unexpected people. And it was those moments uh, occurring at regular intervals reminded me about why I was doing uh, what I was doing. Hmm. May I I give you some examples? Yeah. (laughs) So on the more mundane side of things, I hope this is not shocking news to anybody, but pastors prefer not to attend building and grounds committee meetings. <laughs> I, I avoided them whenever I could. <laughs> uh, sometimes I couldn't, avoid, if a big decision had to be made, for example, I couldn't avoid them. So I would look at these men and my experience, maybe things have changed in my experience. They were almost always men and they'd be sitting around handling estimates on roof repair. But in those moments, I would think, you know, why are these guys doing this? I mean, why are they giving up an evening away from their families to do this? Are you, are you going to jump in there? No, I, it, no, sorry. <laughs> what I was thinking was, it's not just the roof of the church that they're working on. Uh, they're working on a holy place in their lives, a place where their children were baptized, where uh, they themselves may have been married, 
their parents and grandparents were buried from this place. To them, this is more than a roof repair. This is the house of God. This is the place they come to to spend time with God, where the holy moments in their lives take place. And then it, it not only did I see that in them, I thought, okay, my job tonight, since I can't, <laughs> I can't offer much on roof repair, but my job was to help them see what they were doing. And that's what I took to be the work of ministry. We're, we're doing holy work tonight, not because we're choosing a, <laughs> you know, the best bid on our roof. We're doing holy work because we're working on God's, God's house. So, well, first of all, I find your, you know, thinking about Ecclesiastes really interesting because we don't know who wrote it, right? But in the start of the book, they call him Kohelet, the preacher, right? And it seems to be this preacher looking back at his ministry and what have I done, like you said. Um, so you don't regret your 40 years in ministry, though, right? From what I'm hearing, like... Not, no, not at all. In fact, I came to the end... In fact, I'm not finished. I'm, I'm probably more active than I expected to be at this point in my life. But, uh, I, I have this enormous sense of gratitude that I was allowed to do uh, what I did. I was allowed to walk alongside people through their journeys of faith. I was allowed to participate in these holy moments of, of their lives. So, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the overwhelming feeling I have is not disillusionment, but it's one of gratitude. So who's your book for preachers or congregants or everybody? Mike, that's a great question. Uh, Pastors, of course, are going to see themselves here. But uh, I think I was hoping to open the eyes of some church members, too. And can I give you an example of that? Um, Many people have read uh, books about Father Tim in Mitford, uh, he was an Episcopal priest and had this kind of an idealized uh, ministry. So uh, Jan Karen, the author of those books, has written, I think, 14 of them now. They've made it to the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, but I, I've read those books and I thought, oh, that has nothing to do. I mean, I don't see my life in Father Tim's at all. Uh, I think it's time church members knew that there was a, uh, there was a different undercurrent to, many, to their pastor's lives that many of them, well, they're human beings for, for one thing, but they experience disappointment and they experience frustration. And uh, <laughs> even worse, they're caught up in career and ambition. Their egos get the better of them at times. I mean, all of that's important to acknowledge that we're, after all, human beings. That can be hard for, the, for normal people out there who are not in that world of ministry to see. Um, I just want to go back a little bit when you mentioned the authenticity when you left the U.S. and yeah. finally saw how you could really look at ministry in a different light. Tell us a little bit more about that and what you saw and the authenticity in that area. So I, I just turned or was about to turn 60 years old, which is a um, red light that you, you have got to make the most of the, you know, the years ahead. And I had this opportunity to go to uh, Zurich, Switzerland, to serve an international church. Uh, It's hard to fully describe to to North Americans what this looks like, but there were 20, uh, well, more than two dozen nationalities and language groups on any given Sunday morning. So the diversity was staggering. And most churches in North America are (laughs) are very homogeneous, at least that was my experience. But then suddenly to be thrust into this, a diverse environment 
uh, was more than an answer to my prayer. I mean, I, I had all the challenge I could possibly uh, handle at that moment. And, and so one of the challenges was to be open to how global Christians see the world. Uh, I'm, I'm reformed by background. I'm used to infant baptism. At that point in my life, I'd never waded out into a lake and baptized anybody. So there I was in my early 60s with a young woman from Africa who had become a Christian at our church, who had come to faith. And she, of course, wanted to be baptized in Lake Zurich. And I had to watch a YouTube video to know how to do it. <laughs> Sorry, I, I admit it. I didn't know what, what in the world I was doing. So I watched a, a YouTube video and I thought, okay, I think I can do that. I, I waded out with uh, Nadia into the, the cold, cold uh, water of Lake Zurich and uh, she leaned back. I, and then I, I helped to raise her to new life. And she came out of the water with arms waving. She was shouting with joy. All the people on the shore from our church were clapping their hands. And I thought, you know, this would never have happened in the Presbyterian churches I served uh, in the U.S. And I was so glad. You know, this this experience opened my eyes to a much wider world of Christian faith. And it it didn't fit exactly with my theology. Right. But but a neat experience, right? <laughs> it was what I needed to do, what God introduced me to. Yeah, I'm very pleased with yeah. it. I'm a I'm an ordained Baptist pastor, so uh immersion is our practice. And that is, I think, my favorite moment of ministry though, is lifting them up and you literally get to watch them take that first breath of new life. And they often take a big gasp, right? And yeah, it's a great moment. So glad you got to enjoy it. <laughs> Well, it's happened a, a few times since. I had to come back home eventually. But, uh, yes, I will always remember those moments out in the lake. What would you say to that young person that is in seminary looking to go into ministry and doesn't quite know what's going to happen ahead of them? And you obviously have this history of 40 years, four decades. What would you say to them? You know, the good news, this is this might take us full circle to Bonhoeffer. The good news is that the disillusionment has already occurred. Uh, the church has declined significantly from the church I grew up in, in the 50s and 60s. So most young people uh, today view the church much differently uh, from the way I uh, viewed it. And they are on the lookout for what is authentic, what's real. Uh, as, you, as you know from the book, my uh, older daughter is a, a pastor as well. And I, in my conversations with her, the long walks we take, I, I discover, and this is good news, I discover that she has a much different way of looking at the, the church world today than I did. And I'm so thankful. She's not caught up in uh, the same goals that I set for myself. Uh, so I'm, I actually am quite optimistic about the seminary students I see today. I I think their uh, perspective is a far healthier one than the the one I had. What about congregations out there or people in the congregation? What would you say to them? You know, um, we're living at an interesting time in uh, church history. I don't know what's happening on your side of the border, uh, but the the great resignation has occurred as a result of the pandemic. And people are surprised to know that the great resignation has come to church. 
And uh, according to a Barna study, up to a third of all pastors seriously considered in the last year or so uh, quitting their jobs. And then if you include uh, younger pastors, that number, that percentage climbs significantly. Well, uh, that need, I mean, we, that has to get our attention. We have to pay attention to that. And what I'm hoping for, this is the answer to your question. What I'm hoping for is that churches and pastors will re-examine the, the covenant relationship that they have. Pastors need to re-examine the, what their expectations from church members. And just as important, uh, church members need to re-examine what they're expecting to get from their pastoral leaders. This is, this is a great time in a way, a great opportunity to rethink all of that. Yeah, I've seen it's been hard two years, but there's so much opportunity for the church in the midst of everything that we've experienced as well, right? <laughs> well, it, it, so I've been looking at it uh, from the pews. Uh, uh, you know, I go to worship now and I sit in the back most Sundays. Uh, and I'm, I am so glad that I didn't have to lead a congregation during this pandemic. <laughs> I didn't have to make the adjustment to uh, Zoom worship, although I have, you know, I've preached a few times to help out my pastor, and uh, I hated preaching to a camera lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's awful. <laughs> uh, at least with, when I'm talking with the two of you, I see you, and uh, I mean, I see the expressions on your face. I mean, that's that's wonderful. Uh, but during the pandemic, all of that was missing. The embodied sense of the the, the church was missing. Uh, anyway, I, I I'm thankful in a way that I didn't have to do it. God bless you, Mike. <laughs> for your work. I hope your church is appreciative too. Well, and I'm not in a church full time anymore either. I do this full time, and I just guess preach pulpit supply. So <laughs> I had it easy too. <laughs> all right. The positive of the pandemic, I can say, with the Zoom, I'm watching it, is that I was never late for church. You know, when you have little ones at home, finally, <laughs> never ever late. I always made it in time to hear the music and not just for the sermon. <laughs> you know, there's been an interesting controversy of late on social media about this issue. Uh, somebody wrote an op-ed piece for a major newspaper about how it's time for people to come back. And of course, I agree with that. I mean, who, I want to be together with uh, other believers and listen to them sing or sing alongside them. But um, I think what what the pandemic has taught us is that there are different needs that can be met in different ways. I mean, there are going to be people who who need to worship by Zoom. I think I'm thinking of my 95 year old mother who couldn't who would not have been connected to her church home had it not been for Zoom worship. So all during those two years she felt connected to her pastor Mm -hmm. and to her fellow members because she was able to fire up her uh, iPad on Sunday mornings. I would, I would love to read Bonhoeffer if he had like today's perspective, right? Like zoom communities and all this different stuff (laughs) and love to get his take on that. But uh, we've got your take on the book too now and your 40 years of ministry. Tell us how we can find uh, chasing after wind. Uh, it's not hard. Uh, the, uh, the book was published by uh, Erdman's Publishing Company, uh, which is in my hometown, of all things. Uh, it's also available on Amazon and most other uh, booksellers sell it as well. And if people want to learn more about you, how can they go about doing that? 
You know, I have a, a Substack uh, newsletter, and it's called Doug's Blog Substack, and uh, I publish a lot there that's not in the book. Thank you so much for making time for us. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. having me. It's it's good to good to meet you in this way. And thank you so much for joining us and for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.